Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. A hole in their hearts, a Vancouver rabbi and neighbor of a young Vancouver man killed in Israel says his community is shattered by the loss and bracing itself for losses to come. No way out. A humanitarian worker in Gaza City says his family can't flee the airstrikes because there's nowhere safe to go. But he still has hope for peace, if not for his generation, then for the next. The puzzle of the peace, a former Israeli justice minister says he too still believes in the possibility of a lasting truce, but says there's no point trying to negotiate with Hamas. Raising the voice. After strong initial support, an Australian referendum to give Indigenous Australians a voice to Parliament has become a divisive subject. One woman says it could be a powerful tool for communities like hers. Leaning on her about the things she leans on, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is under pressure now about an expensive purchase. And no one knows whether to call it a podium, a lectern or a tempest in a teapot. And boob dreams. CBC listeners are upset to hear that they have heard the very last National Research Council time signal, followed by a lot more than 10 seconds of silence. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that hates to long dash your hopes. A Vancouver area MP says a wonderful young man from his writing has been killed in Israel. The MP posted the news on social media this morning with the permission of Ben Mizrahi's family. A Facebook post from his high school says Mr. Mizrahi was 22 with three siblings and a funeral is planned tomorrow in Israel. Jonathan Infeld is the rabbi of Congregation Beth Israel. He lives in the same neighborhood as Mr. Mizrahi's family. We reached him in Vancouver. Rabbi, I know you're not the Mizrahi family's rabbi. You're their neighbor. So in that capacity, what can you tell us about Ben Mizrahi? I don't know Ben so well, but, uh, you know, I know the family. And, of course, many of my members of my synagogue are friends of his. My front window looks out onto their backyard. And often here, over the last number of years, since we've moved into this house, we could hear the kids playing and it's always always been a, a delight to hear all of, all of the Mizrahi kids outside and to see the family together. It's really one of one of one of the beautiful things of living in this particular house, actually. So his loss is devastating for the entire Vancouver Jewish community. When did you find out that he was missing? We found out that he was missing on the Jewish Sabbath on Shabbat. Actually, as someone who doesn't use electronics on Saturday or Jewish holidays, and Saturday was uh, was actually a holiday and the Jewish Sabbath, mm-hmm. I found out from people in synagogue that some of the rabbis actually had gathered together in my office to 
discuss what was happening uh, later in the afternoon. And that's when I found out about Ben specifically. In the morning, I found out about what's happening in Israel. Mm-hmm. And of course, for me, my immediate concern in the morning was about Israel and the devastation and the fact that our middle child is currently on a gap year program in Jerusalem. Have you reached him? Yeah, we've, we're, of course, now talking with him yeah. at least twice a day, every day. How's he doing? He's, he's doing okay. You know, obviously, it's, it's very difficult for him. It's a sad and, and scary time in Israel to be there when, when the country's in the midst of a war and, and after a horrific, savage attack. There's no other, no other feeling than, than sadness and, and fear. How old is your son? He's 18. I mean, one doesn't have to have children, certainly, to understand uh, and feel sorrow uh, and the depth of this loss. Right. But it adds another dimension, I can right. only imagine. You know, you're a rabbi, yeah. you're neighbors with these folks, you have a son, exactly. a little bit younger. And, and our, our older son, who is currently working as the Hillel, which is the Jewish organization on campus, um, advocacy coordinator in Montreal, was friends with Ben, knew him. And he is currently, of course, not only devastated, but also inundated with work and, and mm-hmm. with dealing with the, the anti-Semitism in Montreal and on campus that has has been renewed again because Jews were killed, which makes no sense to me. You did have a chance to meet with the Mizrahi family as they're trying to yeah. figure out what was what was going on. Can you, you can know. you tell us what, what was happening in those moments? I went with a couple of the other community rabbis on Saturday afternoon to their house, just even for a few moments, in order to show support and to be with them. And at that moment, when you know that something terrible has likely happened, there are no words that one can say that could bring comfort. Um, They had last heard about their son, that he was having had been a medic, in the Israeli army, that he was tending to other people's wounds. That was the only thing they had heard about him. Mm-hmm. Other than that, this they, is at the concert. He was he was at yeah. the concert just as a as a concert was, goer, but he had this additional exactly. experience. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so he was tending to other people's wounds, and apparently that's the only thing that they had heard about or from him. Yeah, where were they getting this information? Like, how were they getting information in those chaotic I, I and terrifying that. moments? I think they got that from a friend somehow. And you can only imagine the worst. I mean, there's only a few possible scenarios, and amongst them are being taken captive by Hamas into Gaza, which is unimaginable and something that no one could ever, ever imagine the terror and the horror. Where is his family? Where is his family now? The family left for Israel. They, They wanted to get to Israel as as quickly as they possibly could to help with the search. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, they ended up being there for the funeral. Rabbi, how are you taking care of yourself and your family right now? I mean, are, are you sleeping even? How have you been getting through the last several so, days? In the, in the Jewish community around the world, in Canada, and of course in Vancouver, I don't think many people are sleeping so well. There's hardly a member of our community who isn't touched in some way. It's a small Jewish community, and and we're smo- so interconnected with Jews and specifically people who live in Israel. Every, almost every one of the members of our 
of our synagogue has a friend, has a family member in Israel. I have family in Israel, and I have a family, extended family in Vancouver, mm-hmm. who have already left Vancouver and are being called up into the reserves. So not only is everyone really upset and about and and saddened about what has already happened, but people are extremely concerned about what's going to happen and the safety and security of our children um, and our family members who are in Israel or on their way to Israel in order to defend Israel, in order to be there for Israel. When you, it was quite beautiful how you described looking out your window, and it's a beautiful area of Vancouver. I remember it well. When you look out that window now, how are you feeling? Certainly, when, in fact, I'm looking out the window now, um, there's a sukkah for the holiday of Sukkot in their backyard. You can see the sukkah and a sukkah, uh, a temporary dwelling spot that people gather in for eating mm-hmm. during the holiday of Sukkot and meeting and inviting and and gathering for joyful occasions with friends and family. And uh, it's empty, you know. It, it's a reminder of the terrible tragedy and, and the, the emptiness that is that is happening in, in our hearts and in our community at this moment. Rabbi Infeld, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for being in touch, and uh, thank you for caring. We really, really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Rabbi Jonathan Infeld of Congregation Beth Israel in Vancouver. That's where we reached him. Israel says it is back in control of the towns near Gaza that were invaded by militants on Saturday. But the threat is far from over. Today, rockets fired from Gaza sent residents scrambling into shelters. Hundreds of thousands of troops have been called up, a move that suggests an imminent ground invasion of Gaza. Yossi Balin is a former minister of justice for Israel and was a keen negotiator during the peace talks in Oslo in the 1990s. We reached him in Tel Aviv. Yossi, I I know you spent some time in a bomb shelter today. What was happening around you that you had to do that? Well, we are already used to it uh, several years. And uh, in the last uh, days, we are in and out uh, in in the room which is sheltered. This time feels different, though, doesn't it, to you? You'll see. I mean, certainly I the cycle. Not. Yeah, I hope not. I, I, I really, I hope that it will not be the the usual ritual, and that uh, it will be possible to incapacitate the the Hamas, because Hamas is not is not a partner. Hamas is not a counterpart. Hamas is a kind of an ISIS because it doesn't want something very specific that Israel can deliver. And there is a huge difference between the PLO, which wants a Palestinian state on 22% of the land, which I believe they deserve and can get, while the, the, the Hamas doesn't want any state and any, any agreement with Israel and is not ready to recognize the Oslo agreement. Yeah. Does the Israeli uh, government the, want that? The current government? Not. What you're describing is, is, just for our listeners, the different uh, table that is set right now compared to who was at the table, who you were helping negotiate with. Yeah. Just uh, 11 months ago, there mm-hmm. was another prime minister who went mm-hmm. to the UN and suggested the, the two-state solution as the only solution between us and the Palestinians. And I believe that the, the center-left will come back to power and uh, may suggest a two-state solution. It sounds like you have some sliver of hope even in the midst of all of this? I do have. The, the problem is Hamas is a big, big problem. And uh, if it is not Hamas in power, 
And if the, the Palestinian Authority returns to the, to the Gaza Strip and manages it, and in Israel you have a government which is ready to talk business about the Palestinian state, it may not take a generation but, but months. Uh, I don't believe that it is so far from us because by now we know the solution. The majorities on both sides would like to have peace and are ready to pay the price for it. When you talk to young people who grew up in this cycle uh, of building violence, even after Oslo, people in Gaza we've been speaking to as well, they may want peace, but, but they're not sure that that solution can really ever come. And there are people in Israel who don't feel it's a two-state solution is, is possible. How do you combat that? You are right. But I'll tell you a secret. If the two governments are coming with an agreement, like we did in Oslo, we will get huge majorities. Our problem will not be that there are no majority for peace. Our problem will be with the minorities. And this time, we should be much more prepared to tackle these minorities than what what happened to us in 93. I want to get back to that in just a moment. But the issue at hand today, as you know, there are lives on the line on many levels, but certainly uh, immediately with the hostages Hamas has taken. So given that the lives of those hostages are on the line, you'll see what option does the Israeli government have right now uh, other than to try to strike some deal for their release and, and perhaps even negotiate with Hamas? I don't have an answer to this question. And uh, maybe first uh, the, the women and the, the children, old people will be released, something like that. I, I don't believe that uh, this very sad situation with the hostages will change the course of things between the parties. I mean, the, the decision to incapac- uh, the Hamas, to incapacitate them, uh, will not be uh, impacted by the fact that there are people who are hostages in the hands of the Hamas. When you listen to, to what government, Israeli government officials are saying right now and signs that a ground invasion into Gaza could, could come, the retaliatory attacks, we know there's civilian loss of life in, in Gaza as well. Is that going to, to actually bring a resolution? Because those methods haven't necessarily worked before. Well, I, I, I must tell you something about mm-hmm. it. In all the, the previous rounds... The answer to this question was very obvious. No, it will not bring, but for more uh, feeling of revenge and uh, to to uh, continue to perpetuate the, the uh, cycle of uh, violence and revenge. Uh, I'm not sure that I can give you this answer again today. I think that it is impossible to ignore what happened. It's it's really what happened is unbelievable. It is totally crazy. They are bringing us to the medievals or something like that. Not to, to react is impossible. To react in, in a very careful way is the right answer. And still, innocent people will be killed on both sides. But after that, the, the main aim should be the morning after how and to whom are we going to uh, hand over the, the Gaza Strip if it is uh, up to us? A moment ago, you seemed to recognize some of the 
the criticisms that people had with the accord. You know, it was meant to be temporary, but even with that, you know, the what ifs, the if onlys that were, you know, were talked about, um, but also the concerns that settlements increased after those accords, those kinds of issues. How is it possible to not repeat the mistakes of the past? Not to go for another interim agreement, but only to the permanent agreement. I, I tried my best to convince uh, Prime Minister Rabin to go directly uh, to the permanent agreement. He uh, had uh, very strong arguments against it, but I believe that he was wrong and uh, that maybe I had to insist upon it much more, although I don't, uh, I'm not sure that I could uh, could convince him. I think that we gave a gift to the uh, extremists on both sides of five years in which they tried their best to uh, torpedo the agreement, and that should not be repeated. Yossi, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Yossi Balin is a former minister of justice in Israel and a key negotiator during the Oslo peace talks in the 1990s. We reached him in Tel Aviv. Coming up on the program, a humanitarian worker in Gaza City says his family is staying put at home despite the airstrikes because there's nowhere safe to go. When Australia's Prime Minister first announced a referendum to amend the Constitution to recognize Indigenous peoples, it seemed destined to succeed. The initiative would create a permanent advisory body known as the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. It was years in the making and aims to address the impacts of colonization and the real disparities that exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. But in recent months, the debate over the referendum has become fractious and fraught with racism. And as Australians prepare to cast their ballots this Saturday... Current polls suggest the vote will likely fail. Sana Nakata is an assistant professor at the Indigenous Education and Research Center at James Cook University. She's also a Torres Strait Islander who supports a yes vote. We reached Ms. Nakata in Melbourne. Sana, did you imagine when this when this referendum was first announced that it would get to, to where things are now, heated and divisive, certainly? We always knew that it was going to be hard to win a referendum, that terms of requiring a double majority are really difficult to achieve. So we were prepared for the fight, but the nature of the political debate and the terms upon which it has had to be fought have been difficult. And just for our listeners, one Indigenous senator has been targeted with threats uh, and racial abuse uh, as all of this has has been going on. That's right. We've we've seen the underbelly of conservative right-wing uh, white supremacy, the presence of neo-Nazis at no rallies. It's been a really upsetting time. One of the, the, the folks who helped draft this proposal, the voice proposal, Marcia Langton, who is an Indigenous academic, said that the arguments in the no camp are, are either stupid or racist. Those are her words. How would you describe what you're hearing on the other side? I think the disappointing public debate about this question has really arisen as a result of political cynicism more broadly. And I think what we've seen 
um, from the decision of the opposition not to provide bipartisan support is the opportunity for fringe and extremist attitudes towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to gain a platform that they normally wouldn't have. I don't believe most Australians are racist. I don't believe that most Australians are stupid, but I think that those aspects have been given a platform and and legitimacy in this debate that we wouldn't normally see. What exactly would a yes vote mean? What would it change in Australia? What would it mean for Indigenous people there? So since 1967, the Commonwealth Parliament has been allowed to make laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but there's been no requirement that those laws be made in our interests or to our benefit. This referendum would give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and our communities the right to represent our interests to the Commonwealth Parliament directly. There are there are differences in, in all communities, of course, and there's there's disagreement and discussion about this within Indigenous communities there as well and divisions on this. Why do you think the message on the yes side hasn't resonated as it has for you throughout the rest of the country? I think there is still a lot of support for the yes vote. And I think most people, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are engaged in the day-to-day business of trying to get things done in their communities and always having to come up against government bureaucrats or legislative constraints are hugely in support. But the disagreements that exist within our community have been grounded in one or two um, perspectives. So early on, there was a claim that the voice referendum would put at risk our sovereignty. That's simply not true. Um, as we move towards the referendum date, there's also a perspective that to engage ourselves with the state in this way is to further legitimise its existence and that there is merit to the argument of voting no or refusing to vote at all. Um, I think this um, ignores the everyday reality of political life in this country. You are just a few days out from from this vote. So how optimistic are you about whether this will succeed? Look, the polls have been terrible. But if the polling is ever going to be wrong, it is going to be wrong on a question like this. A question of national identity, a question that attends to the colonial history of our continent. I have real hope that we'll get this over the line. Um, but I also have the confidence in my people and communities that if we don't, that we still know that we can work towards our self-determination. Is there work going on over the next few days, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I think the last number I've seen is that we've got something like 60,000 volunteers who are still leafleting, door knocking, volunteering at polling booths. I voted early yesterday. There were four yes volunteers to one no volunteer handing out pamphlets, um, advising voters. We have a significant number still of undecided voters or soft voters. So there are a lot of votes up for grabs. Yes needs to win most of those votes. And we have the volunteers on the ground to do the work to swing them to yes. Why is it important for you personally to mark yes? Um, As a Torres Strait Islander, 
um, one of less than 60,000 of us in the country. We are such a small segment of the voting population. We are not even a rounding error. We're certainly less than the margin of error. We are not politically represented in this country. We have never had a federal member of parliament in any country that wants to call itself a democracy. That is a completely untenable situation. Um, so this matters to me because it remedies a constitutional failure to ensure that people who have laws made about them get to be heard on those laws. Um, and, you know, that matters to me as a Torres Strait Islander and it matters to me as a politics scholar. Sana, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Sana Nakata is an assistant professor at the Indigenous Education and Research Centre at James Cook University and a Torres Strait Islander. We reached her in Melbourne. Israeli airstrikes continue in Gaza, and people there are doing whatever they can to avoid the incoming fire. Israel's military says it has selected targets linked to Hamas. But media and eyewitnesses say apartment blocks, a mosque, and hospitals have been attacked. Last night we spoke to a doctor in Gaza City whose windows were blown out by an explosion nearby, which left his family rattled but unhurt. Today we reached Amjad Shawa. He's the coordinator of the Palestinian NGO Network, and he also lives in Gaza City. Amjad, I know you're at home right now. How close have the airstrikes come? It's not close, but airstrikes everywhere. And I can go to the window to see because there is light after the airstrikes. You can hear it. And uh, our homes are shaking because of these airstrikes. Well, now there is another one. Who is in your home with you? How many people are you there trying to stay safe? I have me and my wife, and I have four children, one uh, in Germany now, and I have two daughters and uh, one son. The two daughters, the first is 22 years. She just graduated from the law. The second in the dental faculty, mm. she is 20 years. And I have uh, the youngest, who is my son, 14 years old. What kind of conversations do you have when all of this is going on around you? It's very difficult times since uh, I'm busy in my work in humanitarian actions, meetings. When the bombardment is happening, you can't imagine what's going on in my home. And yesterday, when we were asked to evacuate our home, that we have a meeting uh, to discuss what we can do, to leave our home, to where to go. And I have my ma- my mother in the first floor. How old is she? She's 74. She's seen a lot. How is she reacting to this latest violence? <sighs> What's going on is crazy. This such bombardment, closing the borders, prevent entry of the basic needs, supplies, to cut electricity, to cut water, to cut uh, medical food supplies to Gaza. This never happened in any context all over the world. 
Why did you decide to I'm stay cool. in your home? You said you had... I even... decided to stay since there is no safe place outside. How many people left? Your neighbors? The neighbors, so many people left. And today, a uh, number of them came back because they realized that <laughs> staying at home is the best choice. You said, you know, you were saying earlier that why is this happening now? You know that Israel says it's it's happening because it has to retaliate for what Hamas has done and is, is still doing, you know, holding hostages. Given everything that's happening, uh, Amjad... To release the hostage, to release whatever they, they, they're saying, to kill about 900 people, about 125 children, to destroy about 6,000 housing units, no, no one can understand this kind of things. This will happen in another context. I can't, cannot imagine the reaction from the world will be the same. Can you imagine a time of peace given everything that's happened, Amjad? I will never ever give up hope. And I have to work on this, and I'm working for this, to enhance this between the new generation that have grown up in such conditions. You can imagine this generation. What do your daughters say to you? They've grown up with all of this, as you said, but also with your hopes for peace and their own hopes. What do they say to you? <laughs> very good and complicated question and very difficult one. Mm. You used to ask why you are staying here. You have to leave. And I have sometimes to... Sure, no, we are rooted here, and this is the best place to stay, and we have future. No one can imagine what meaning of life for 16 years in open, the biggest open prison all over the world. So my children, as others, are thinking to leave, and part of them, professional, doctors, engineers, left. And they went to the Turkey to go by the sea, by these boats, to buy the Mediterranean, to reach Greece, to find other opportunities. I just spoke, Amjad, with Yossi Balin, a former cabinet minister in Israel. He was a negotiator, a key negotiator during the Oslo peace talks. Yeah, I remember him. You remember? I remember him. Yeah, I, I spoke to him, and he, he said he's still hopeful like you are, but he said that peace cannot come as long as the current Israeli government and Hamas are involved, are in charge on their respective sides. How much support is there right now from what you see for Hamas in Gaza? Hamas was elected to be part of the parliament and to I... run the government. In the first seconds, when Hamas got the vote, there were sanctions on the Palestinians. And the sanctions imposed really isolated Hamas. And this isolation create bad things for, for us and for the others. What's the Palestinian asking for? To apply the UN resolutions. This is simple thing that to apply justice. Do you think those Palestinians who support Hamas will turn away from Hamas given what has happened and what Hamas has done? I think if this UN resolution, the international will be applied, Hamas and others, whoever, will be on, on the stream of the Palestinian rights. I'm not, I'm not defending Hamas, or I'm not part of Hamas, I'm not 
But um, as Palestinians, mm-hmm. I have to ask, is the PA, which is part of the peace negotiations, what's going on there? This government and the other government ignore totally the rights of the Palestinians. We have to be, to feel as Palestinians that we are part of the world and that this world has two open eyes, not one. In the meantime, it's that daily life and death struggle you're going through. How are you preparing for the days ahead? These days we are living not day by day. We are living hour by hour, minute by minute. Amjad, thank you very much for, for your time. I know power and phone power is very precious right now. Thank you, and please stay safe. Thank you, Nath. Thank you. Amjad Shawa is the coordinator of the Palestinian NGO Network. We reached him in Gaza City. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Yep, now here comes the big one, the National Research Council official time signal. The beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of silence indicates exactly 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. It's only a few seconds long, but it's the longest running feature on CBC Radio. And now its time has run out. You just heard three variations on the National Research Council's official time signal from 1974, 1984, and 2014, and there have been many others. The CBC first started airing the signal in 1939, and we all thought we'd never hear the end of it, but apparently we have. Today, the Corp announced that it will no longer be broadcast. Malika Panic is an artist and the founder of a stationary company called The Paperhood. Over the past decade, she's produced countless illustrations of landmarks and other pieces of Canadiana, but one of her most popular is a visual representation of that now extinct sound. We reached Ms. Panic in Toronto. Malika, what does that sound conjure up for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm an immigrant to Canada, so I didn't grow up with listening to the CBC, and um, it's uh, bringing back memories hearing it for the first time um, on the radio. Like that's not that long ago, maybe ten years, fifteen yeah. years actually, listening to the time signal. But uh, when I came here, I I listened to it and I heard it every day on the radio and I felt it was this kind of odd but (laughs) certainly special uh, piece of history playing every day. And uh, I just felt like maybe this deserves a piece of art. I have one in my office, a copy of that print and others in this building here at CBC certainly do. Mine was a gift for my very kind co-host, Chris Howden. But for those who have not seen this print... Describe the illustration of this of the National Research Council's time signal for our listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, it is a fairly simple illustration of, a, of an old-fashioned-looking radio. 
and uh, it's kind of in black and white tones. There's just the dial that is on the on the frequency is like red to give a little bit of touch of color. And above the radio are the words of the time signal. And how have people responded to it since you first made it? I've gotten amazing feedback um, over the years. Like this is one of my first piece I made for my company. And um, I didn't know when I made it that so many people have fond memories around the time signal. But once I brought it to craft shows to sell it, um, people came up to me telling me their stories of um, back in the day in the family, they would set the, their, 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 their fathers or mothers would set their clock mm-hmm. by the time signal that they hear every day on the radio, or it would remind them of um, family members that maybe have passed away or that used to work for the CBC. So there are a lot of personal um, memories and stories I hear um, every time I sell this print um, at shows, and uh, it's very warming, heartwarming to hear that. Was it surprising as well that level of response and a deep connection? It sounds like from a lot of people to this to the sound and and your print. For sure, yes, yeah, it was it was surprising, and um, it, it was I was really happy to 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 hear all the positive responses from people for sure. Did you imagine all those years ago that this would now be immortalizing this this historic part of Canada? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I didn't think so, for sure. <laughs> you think you're going to get some more uh, orders? I hope so. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> I did see uh, a spike today, and I was uh, surprised because I was actually not listening to the radio today, so I only found out uh, via text. <laughs> so I was also confused to see uh, the spike in sales, so I thought something might may have happened somewhere, somehow. <laughs> the time signal, we should tell our listeners, uh, goes back to the Second World War, uh, when yes. certainly watches were a very different thing. We didn't have uh, our, our phones with us to check the time, uh, and, and the signal marked its 80th birthday in 2019. And at that time, the host of Day 6 on CBC Radio, Brent Bambury, spoke with one of the people who, who have voiced that time signal, Lawrence Wall. So we want to play you a clip and our listeners a clip of what Lawrence Wall had to say then. It's become such a part of the Canadian firmament that, that I don't think they would be very quick to want to change it or, heaven forbid, drop it altogether. Yes, we've got accurate clocks now, but people still like to listen to it. And I still run into people who say, aren't you the guy who does the time signal? Not, aren't you the guy who does the news in Ottawa? So it's the time signal that really resonates with them still. And I think it always will. So what's your reaction, Malika, that that it is going away, it is being dropped? It's very sad, I think. I mean, it has been running for so long. And um, I mean, it doesn't take up that much time, so... <laughs> I feel, yeah, I think a lot of people will be sad to see it go. In a, in a statement uh, on, on our website, CBC uh, Communications said that it had to do with uh, questions about accuracy and the fact that we have phones and 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 things like that. But, you know, when, when you go back to when you were a newcomer to Canada yourself, what was the moment you thought this would resonate with people as it resonated with you? Well, I think after hearing it over several days, weeks, um, every day, it seems like, okay, this must be important. Um, this must be special. Um, it is. It seems so um, old-fashioned in a way, but it's still running. So there must be like a, a, like a deeper connection 
um, for people to it. And um, I think it's sad that it has to go. Malika, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you very much. Malika Panic is an artist in Toronto. That's where we reached her. Most billionaires are celebrated for amassing their fortunes, but the late billionaire Chuck Feeney is celebrated for something different, giving his billions away. Mr. Feeney died on Monday in his two-bedroom rented apartment in San Francisco. He was 92. Over his lifetime, he made about $8 billion investing in duty-free shops and technology startups, and he donated virtually all of it. He made most of those donations anonymously, and he made many of them to academic institutions in his parents' native Ireland among them to the University of Limerick, which would not exist as we know it without Mr. Feeney's backing. Loretta Brennan-Glucksman is past chair of the University of Limerick Foundation and was a good friend of Chuck Feeney's. We reached her today in New York City. Loretta, when you think back to when you first met Chuck Feeney, did you have any idea how rich he was? No, that wasn't even a factor, actually. <laughs> um, I, I, My late husband knew him uh, slightly from business and respected him so much. Um, and I don't think there's as much known about Chuck's acuity in finance and business. He was a brilliant financial strategist. And that's one of the things that attracted Lou to him because Lou at that time was chairman of Lehman Brothers and mm-hmm. that was his his profession and his life and he loved it. He loved his work. He loved the people with whom he worked. And he respected Chuck Feeney. Yeah. But there was nothing flaunting about Chuck at all. And that was, again, part of his charm. But I don't think he was ever, ever given the respect that he had earned over a 30- or 40-year career for the deals that he had made that accumulated into this vast fortune that everybody talks about and knows about. And that was the genesis of his amazing philanthropy you in- that he later turned into wonderful things. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about how, what he turned that into. You initially you know, got to know each other in the early days of the University of Limerick. Uh, he reportedly Correct. donated about a billion dollars, a billion dollars to education mm-hmm. in Ireland alone. He contributed That's to right. Sinn Féin as well as the Ulster Defense Association so opposite sides of the conflict in Ireland during the Troubles. So Mm -hmm. just how much of a role would you say he played in brokering peace? A great, great role. And none of that is really in, you know, common knowledge. I know people knew he was active up there, but I don't think they knew his intrinsic value and how hard he worked to keep the moderates talking on both sides. And that that was crucial when you cast your mind back later to the influence that the hardline people were losing. That created a bit of a vacuum. And fortunately, the moderates were ready to fill that vacuum very much because of Chuck, in my opinion. Why was it important for him to give to that cause both sides of what was unfolding? What did he tell you? He he was smart enough to know that... um, the Irish are, are not easily assuaged when they form an opinion, and certainly a political opinion that has been held for a couple of centuries. That's hard to shift. 
So he started, as he always did, quietly and small, and built pockets of interest and accomplishing whatever the goal was, in this case, some sort of stability mm-hmm. and, and uh, shared humanity. He thought that he could, if he could underwrite that, and as long as it would take, that was very much worthwhile in his book. And in terms of, you know, you mentioned his personality, that he didn't like to flaunt his wealth, but in terms of his philanthropy, why did he keep that so low-key? I think he felt that was so private. I I think he would have felt um, braggadocio kind of, (laughs) you know, like, oh, look what I've done. And that was the antithesis of Chuck Feeney. He would never, if if he got a Nobel Prize, he wouldn't brag about it. He just was so self-effacing and took such joy in the results of what others accomplished. And somehow that was enough for him, enough satisfaction. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have cited Chuck Feeney as an inspiration to them. Um, He was certainly a leader, even a pioneer, some would say, at least among billionaires in that small group of -hmm. of this idea of giving while living. But what do you ultimately think Chuck Feeney's legacy will be? I hope it will be uh, using money that he has earned very uh, laboriously and honestly in the way that will most benefit humanity, especially when he's gone. He has a true sense of values. He values people of all sorts. And in order to be able to not guarantee, certainly, but hope and assure a good life for as many people, he gave to as many viable causes as he could find. And just imagine that. It's just like linking together um, all these successful projects, yeah. and they'll go on for generations. And that's, I think, what drove him. You have so many memories, clearly, but you were talking about the connection between your husband, Lou, and Chuck Feeney. Is there one story you want to share with our listeners? Oh, one of my favorite memories. Uh, as I said, Lou was the Wall Street guy, and mm-hmm. he so admired uh, Chuck's acumen. And they were both very shy, basically, pretty shy people. And after the meetings, there would always be uh, a glorious dinner. I mean, the Irish love parties, and they do parties <laughs> very, very well. So, But they went on and on and on, and both Chuck and Lou were not late-night guys. So they developed this competition. <laughs> the guy that could uh, politely leave first was supposed to receive a tie from the other guy that was stuck staying late at the party. and A new was, one? Oh, very new and very spiffy. Okay. It had to be a very, like a Hermes or something Ooh. wonderfully unusual. I like it. Because neither of them were fashion plates by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. But they knew the value of an Hermes tie. <laughs> a little bit yes, of flaunting. It was uh, maybe, uh, I think I would have flaunted it more than Lou ever would have. I don't think Lou knew what an Hermes tie was, first of all, and probably Chuck didn't either. I think Helga and I did the tie shopping probably more than anything. But it was just a wonderful reflection on their personalities that I just treasured. It's It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Loretta. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing it. I'm so grateful. Our pleasure. Thank you. Loretta Brennan-Glucksman is the former chair of the University of Limerick Foundation and a good friend of the late Chuck Feeney. 
we reached her in New York City. In the middle of a dried-out ancient lake in New Mexico, there are dozens of human footprints. Footprints that tell stories of hunters stalking a giant sloth, a parent carrying a child on their hip, and children jumping and playing. For years, archaeologists have debated the age of those footprints. Now, a new paper backs up previous research that said the tracks were 21 to 23,000 years old. And it says they provide strong evidence that humans were in the Americas far earlier than previously believed. But for indigenous archaeologists, the footprints are just more evidence of what they already know. Paulette Steves is a Cree Métis archaeologist and professor at Algoma University. We reached her in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Paulette, I know many Indigenous people, certainly yourself included, are not surprised by the age uh, of these footprints. But in terms of archaeology and archaeology in the Americas specifically, what's the significance here? Well, it really begins to decolonize American archaeology. So, you know, questions regarding the human past of the Western Hemisphere of the Americas have been framed in Eurocentric and colonial thought since the beginning of American archaeology. And regarding the initial peopling of the Western Hemisphere, archaeologists frame the human past as infantile in time on a global scale. So the timing of initial human colonization was guided by colonial thought and racism in early archaeology, not necessarily by any scientific data. The researchers, so, so they had conclusions originally, then there were some questions about the conclusion, those conclusions, and, and the idea was to look for different lines of evidence. They did that, and they used, you know, they looked at pollen, seeds, luminescence, and all of this to get to this conclusion once again. When you look at the evidence from your expertise, what do you make of it? Well, I immediately look for other sites in the area that I know of. Although there's been there've been many um, archaeologists that have consistently denied an earlier presence than like eleven or twelve thousand years ago of people in the Americas, there has been a small group of archaeologists across the last hundred years that have risked their careers and reputations to publish what they knew to be the truth, their hard scientific data on earlier sites. So there's sites that date back as far as 200,000 years. But what I look at is, if there's one site in an area, what else has been documented anywhere in that area? Are you heartened or concerned by the response to these latest findings then? Well, both. I mean, it's not uh, surprising that people immediately critique this site. This area of American archaeology publishing on sites that dated earlier than the so-called Clovis uh, technologies has been called an area of academic suicide. So it's been a very dangerous area for archaeologists um, to research and publish in. That's not science. That's not academic. That's racism and bias that's been embedded in American archaeology. When you look at human evolution on a global scale, you'll see everywhere else in the world our understanding of early humans has been completely challenged and changed by really good uh, new research and 
we know that early humans were in like Northeast Asia today, mm-hmm. what we know as Northeast Asia today, two million years ago. So it's rather ludicrous to to see the view of the rest of the world with early hominids coming and going for two million years. But even though they were close to a, an available land migration route between the Eastern and Western Hemisphere, or what we call today Asia and Alaska, um, that they didn't cross that land bridge. When we know that from the paleontological record, we know that mammals have been migrating in both directions for two million years. Those who you feel were trying to to quash this area of study, what do they have to gain from that? Why would they do that? In American archaeology, the standard was to create a story of conjecture, uh, you know, and make it align with um, the norm of the nation state, which through colonization had erased and dehumanized uh, indigenous people in the Americas. So when colonizers come to a new land, and this isn't just the Americas, this is everywhere in the world. And so, you know, there's been a lot of really amazing uh, indigenous scholars Mm -hmm that have discussed this. They're mainly outside of archaeology, but people like Vine Deloria Jr. and, you know, Jody Bird and um, a number of Indigenous scholars who have really clearly discussed the impacts of colonization on Indigenous people, the racism, the bias, and the intent and the genocide that is all tied to the erasure of Indigenous peoples, identities, language, cultures, histories. It was a norm in a colonized academia everywhere in the world, but it was very pronounced within American archaeology. Beyond this study, how do you want to see this field, the field of archaeology, incorporate more Indigenous expertise? Because you've listed a lot of it there. So yeah. how can how can the field... Be better at well, that. the field really needs to be more open to discussing its own history. A lot of archaeologists are very uh, sensitive to turning a critical gaze on their own field. But there are archaeologists and others who have stepped up and really um, begin to discuss the colonization in American archaeology and how to decolonize the field. And I see discussions beginning to emanate from the colonized minds that inform archaeologists of simple and obvious claims that are not scientifically sound or based on evidence and data, such as when they discuss the new world and the old, old world. There's no such thing. The entire world is old. You know, there's one world. And I think one thing that archaeologists have been totally off their radar is the impact, negative impact, you know, of this work on Indigenous people and the healing power of reclaiming that history and relinking people to the land is a big part of healing and reconciliation so that this is all taking, beginning to take place. I'm very grateful for that. Paulette, thank you. I'm glad we could speak. Thank you for calling. Paulette Steves is a Cree Métis archaeologist and professor at Algoma University. She's in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario.
It began as a kerfuffle, and it has ballooned into a hullabaloo. We go now to Arkansas for the latest on Podium Gate. Tonight, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is addressing her office's purchase of a nearly $19,000 lectern that sparked controversy across the state. It's a $19,000 podium or lectern. Podium. For the first time, Governor Sanders publicly answers questions on the controversial purchase of a podium. Lectern. Lectern. Meanwhile, the governor tells us that it was an error to initially use tax dollars to pay for a podium or what's also called a lectern for her office. Podium. Lectern. We're getting our first look at the $19,000 podium Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' office purchased. Podium. Residents of Arkansas are divided over a scandal involving their governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They're also divided, as you heard, as to whether to call the thing at the center of that scandal a podium or a lectern. So we're all clear what we're talking about. It's the thing you stand behind when you're speaking. And how much do you figure one of those things might go for? If you figured less than $19,000 U.S., you're in the majority. And yet, Governor Huckabee Sanders' office paid over $19,000 U.S. for a model called the Falcon Podium. This was discovered by an Arkansas blogger named Matt Campbell through a Freedom of Information Act request, and he also discovered that that luxurious lectern was purchased with taxpayer money. And that seemingly was only one end of a piece of yarn that leads to a wildly complicated sweater of possible malfeasance. A whistleblower has since claimed the governor's office has doctored documents related to the lectern podium controversy. There may be something dubious about the company the podium lectern was purchased from. It's even possible that no podium or lectern was purchased at all. The money has been reimbursed, but that is not put paid to the hullabaloo. There are still a lot of Arkansans who are concerned about the odium surrounding the podium or the incorrect turn to the lectern. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.